word and would like to open to the book of Micah, chapter 6. We're, uh, we're going to be covering those verses that she read today. And as you're turning there, I, I know that um, there, there is no shortage of courtroom drama in our society today. Whether it's civil or criminal court or even the courtroom of public opinion, there are countless trials happening. And I tell you, I, I wrote those things before some of the things that the indictments and stuff that happened this week. I'm not going to comment on that. I know people have a whole variety of opinions. I'm going to lay that there. But in all of these, in all of these court cases, civil and criminal cases, there are attorneys on one side trying to, um, they're bringing arguments in hopes of gaining indictments and judgments and sentences against the other side. And we see that happening now. In the courtroom of public opinion, there are culture warriors using whatever means they have, whether it's in print or digital media or even other means of influence in order to um, influence the general population toward one view. And in each case, there are plaintiffs and there are defendants and there are judges, whether it's appointed or professional judges or even just the population at large. But it, as in all of this, it begins to beg the question for me, what is the standard? What is the standard that all these judgments are coming up against? A few weeks ago, we began considering Micah's third sermon, which really began in the first verse of chapter 6. And in this sermon, he sets it up like a courtroom. If you remember, he, he called together the mountains and he said, these, the mountains, which really represented the watching world, are there to, to act as, we might call it the gallery, or we might even call it the jury. Micah wouldn't have the term jury because they just didn't have that kind of justice back then. And his whole point was that the watching world is viewing what's happening among God's people. And then he called, uh, Micah called God's people there to, to defend themselves. And they called God, who's really in some ways acting as both, uh, uh, you know, the judge and also the, the plaintiff. He's, he's bringing the arguments against his people. And yet all of this is, is pitted against, it's not just some haphazard standard, it's all pitted against the standard of God's law. And we saw that last time summarized in, in Micah 6, 8, which says, And he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And so now that the opening arguments are made, God has laid out his argument and the, the people kind of laid out their argument saying, hey, what gives God? What should we have done? Now that all that is laid, God is coming forward and bringing his indictment. We, we see God's indictment, first of all, in verses 9 through 12 against his people's injustice. And as we look at the indictment here, I want us to think about, I want us to ask a couple of questions. And the, the first one is this, who, who is bringing the charge? Who is bringing the charge against God's people? And look at what it says in verse 9. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and is, it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear the rod and of him who appointed it. Even in this very brief statement, 
there are some significant things to consider. The first one is this, that God himself is bringing the charge against his people. While he's using uh, someone like Micah as his mouthpiece, it is his standard, it is God's standard that has been corrupted. It is his name that has been dishonored. And Micah even acknowledges, he says that it is sound wisdom. Look at that in verse 9. He said, it is sound wisdom to fear your name. It is wise to refer to the maker's intention for his design. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have his word here so we can understand, God, this is how you intended your design, your people, your image bearers to live. It's wise to refer to the maker's intention for his design. And God's name corresponds with with his authority to bring a decision and to bring judgment. And then Micah concludes this verse with an interesting phrase. When he says, hear the rod. Kids, have you ever experienced that? When you know, well, let me just say, I know we we don't spank kids anymore because it's not good. But I remember when I got in trouble, I would hear my mom go to the kitchen and pull out her favorite wooden spoon, pull it out, and I knew what was happening. I was getting the rod of discipline on my backside, and I most likely deserved it. She had one that had a little hole in it, so it would allow more wind to come through and less surface area, so it would hurt just a bit more until it broke on my bottom, and then that was another deal. But the whole point is, God is saying here, hear the rod, be ready, this is coming, you better watch out. But not only hear the rod of his justice, but look at what it says there in in the last last phrase of verse 9. Hear the rod and of him. This is not a random judgment. This is not a haphazard thing. This is God himself bringing the judgment against his people. It's ordained by God, and the rod is his just response for his people's rebellion. As the maker and creator of all things, and as the perfect God, he alone has the authority to set expectations for his creation. Which then raises another question. Now that we know that it's God bringing the indictment, who is being indicted? Who is being called out here? And Micah communicates this in in the beginning of the verse when it says the city. It says, Yahweh, God, the Lord, cries out or calls out to the city. Now, I assure you, he's not referring to the brick and mortar. He's not talking about the walls surrounding Jerusalem. He's talking about the inhabitants of that city. You see, the people of Jerusalem were, were supposed to be God's people. Jerusalem was supposed to be God's City. That was where his temple was. That was where his glory was. That was where all the sacrifices were to happen. And yet, if you remember, when we began studying Micah several months ago, we noticed that early on, there in Jerusalem, they had other high places set up, other altars set up for them to sacrifice to other deities. They had compromised God's name. They were worshiping false gods in the place that should have been reserved for him. And as we saw a few weeks ago, the world is watching. The world is paying attention to what God's people do. They know that Israel and Judah were supposed to be nations devoted to Yahweh, and yet their actions betrayed him. 
And I think it's important for us to ask the question, as the people of God, if you consider yourself a person of God, someone who's been saved by Jesus Christ, someone who, obviously, you're here wanting to learn something about God, the question is, what is the watching world observing in our lives? Can we be included in this indictment? And how often do we say that we are people of God, yet our actions betray our allegiance to Him? And so with the judge and the guilty identified, the next thing is to ask, what are the counts of the indictment? What are the counts of the indictment? And, and God here lays out several things. Let me just read over the verses again that Jennifer read, because this, I think, really covers for us a lot of the things. You see, not only, you know, early on we talked about the fact that they were worshiping other deities, and part of the response, part of the action of what happened when they worshiped other deities is now they were not acting like the people of God. So listen closely. See if you can see what the indictments are that God lays out. Beginning in verse 10. He says, can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked or the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales, with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouths. This I'm reading from the English Standard Version. They, they kind of, the editors here sort of ask questions. They ask rhetorical questions. It's almost as though God is saying, I've, I've put up with it enough. Can I wait any longer amidst this injustice? It's as though God's patience has run out and he has put off his judgment long enough. The psalmist looks forward to a day Looked forward earlier to a day when, when God's judgment would come. In fact, in Psalm 98, verses 8 and 9, it says, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, and he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The psalmist looked forward to that day, and yet I wonder if the psalmist recognized that God was going to bring judgment on his people first. And we have to recognize the finite nature of our lives. The book of Hebrews reminds us in verse nine, chapter 9, verse 27, that it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. We're only given one opportunity to choose life, to choose justice, to choose righteousness, to respond to the call of God, and after that there is judgment. There will be a time for judgment for all of us, as there was for Israel and Judah. The question is, are we ready? Are you ready? But let's get to the indictments. What did God have against them? And as I read this, it seems like God's got three things that he's frustrated with in his people. And the first one is dishonest gain through dishonest measurements. You see, they were using dishonest means of getting wealthy, in, here in the ESV, it says that they, they were using scant measure, or in other translations, what, other, the New, New American Standard translation says they were using a shortened ephah. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know what an ephah is, right? We, it's, a, it's, a, it's a form of measurement, but, but we do know what shrinkflation is, don't we? 
Have you experienced that? Have you purchased a can that years ago used to contain 12 ounces of soda and now only contains 11.5 ounces? Now, honestly, when you open it and drink it, you wouldn't notice the difference. But our government, our laws of the land require that they put on the outside, this is exactly how much of a measurement there is in here. So they're using the same size can and giving us a little less and charging us even more. That's shrinkflation, right? But here what was happening in Israel is they were doing almost the opposite. They were saying, here's a 12-ounce here's a can, and I'm only going to put 11 and a half ounces in it, but I'm telling you it's 12 ounces. They were flat out lying. They were flat out saying, oh, yeah, it's sort of like those fishing stories. Some of you guys who fish, you know how it goes, right? You go out and say, yeah, I was out there. I caught a fish this big, this big. And we're using exaggerate. And they were doing that same type of thing. They were using these dishonest scales. It's, it's as though they were exchanging money and, and telling people things weighed a certain amount. And yet it wasn't what they were. They weren't giving people what they were honestly paying for. And whether it was a measurement by volume, by size, or weight, or weight, they were being dishonest about it. And some were getting very wealthy by it. They couldn't be trusted in their everyday dealings. And then in addition to that, God said that there were some people who were practicing violence. They were using whatever means they could to bully the weak and the vulnerable. They were taking advantage of people who couldn't stand up for themselves. Even as Vern prayed earlier, we're intended to, God intended for his people to look out for the weak, to take care of them, to, to leave extra for them, to provide for them. And yet here people were using violent means of getting ahead. And then the third count of the indictment was general deceit. In verse 12, it says, your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouths. It's as though you couldn't even trust the words that were coming out of their mouths. Lying marked their language. So God lays out these three pretty significant indictments against his people. But I wonder where these, you know, are we similar? Are we guilty in similar ways? Where are we guilty in similar ways? Are we gaining from the pain of others or showing favoritism, giving one person a better deal than another or making life more difficult, maybe needlessly, for one child instead of another? Or when is it our knee-jerk response to react with violence and fighting rather than grace and patience? And there are a whole variety of ways that we could look at this from social media to how we react to things online. to the bumper stickers we put on our cars. Yes, I love Jesus. And then we drive like the devil. <laughs> the whole point is that the name we claim to put on our lives needs to be lived out. And Jesus was not a man of violence. In thinking about the social media, the violence of our rhetoric online, remember that old phrase, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me? And I think we need to change the last part of that and say that language can be even more destructive. 
But next, deceitfulness. Does lying typify our speech? Are we making ourselves look good? Are we being truthful with God? I mean, he knows all things anyways, but are we in our relationship with God saying, God, I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good. God, you should be happy that I'm a part of your family. Are we being deceitful with ourselves? Are we being truthful about who we are, about our own shortcomings, about the truths that we may not want to admit? That secret sin, or as as it says in the King James, those besetting sins, those things that entangle us. Are we being truthful toward others in our language? Are we exaggerating, making something seem different than it really is? For some of us who, who, who have that fear of other humans, fear of man, sometimes it's difficult to say things that need to be said because we're afraid of how people will receive them, and I am guilty of that. It's difficult. But I think what we need to realize is that God has called his people to a higher standard, and we need to repent when we fall short of that standard. And so God, in his perfect standard, has laid down, laid down this indictment for his people, and in the next couple of verses, God shows us, Micah shows us, God's just sentence. And just as modern judges' judgment would have a, a certain sentence, so too God's just judgment seems to have two results. One is destruction, and the second one is futility. We see the destruction in verse 13 when, when Micah says, Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. We've talked before that in just a few decades after Micah preaches this, other nations, outside nations, are going to come in and destroy the people of Israel, destroy the nation. I was talking with Danielle about something that the, women's, the women are studying on, on uh, Monday nights. And in that study, um, R.C. Sproul pointed out that by 589, this is about 100 years after, after Micah lived and served, by 589, the nation had been picked apart piece by piece by piece by piece until there was no more nation. Eventually, the people would get, some of the people would get to come back, but many people would have to find new homes in other places. God was going to destroy them because they were dishonoring him. And I think what we have to recognize is that unrepentant sin has a destructive role in our lives. Just as cancerous cells might overwhelm healthy ones, so too sin destroys us from within. And so I need to ask us, I need to ask me, what specific sins do we need to confess to the Lord? Maybe especially the sins named in this indictment, deceit, violence, dishonest gain. But what else? What is that thing that the Spirit of God is saying? How about that, Joel? Maybe it's something we need to write down and come back to later and say, God, I'm sorry for this. Maybe now would be a great time just to close your eyes and do business with God, saying, God, I know that I have this in me and I keep falling 
back into that sin. Help me. Forgive me. Because I think if we don't get a handle on sin, even as those of us who are followers of Christ, Christ has redeemed us for all eternity, and I believe even as we've sung before, our eternity is sealed in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean our sin can't wreak a lot of havoc here in our, our lives individually, in our families, in our communities, if we don't take it seriously. So the first part of the sentence is destruction. But Micah seems to point out the second part of the, of the sentence is futility. In verses 14 and 15, we see this it's as though the activities of everyday life that should bring fruit and enjoyment and flourishing will bring nothing but futility. I mean, look at what he says here. You shall eat and not be satisfied. And there will be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve. And, and what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall reap. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Amri and the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. God takes the very things that, that should be a part of our everyday lives, the things that should have been a part of their everyday lives, and makes them futile, makes them useless. I mean, think about this. They're going to eat and not be satisfied. They're going to keep eating and be hungry. And as I was thinking about this, it took me back to middle school when I had to read The Phantom Tollbooth. Did any of you guys have to read that? Back in the day, the Phantom Tollbooth was this bizarre little... Okay, some of you guys are shaking your head. Well, let me just tell you. It's a weird story. This kid, Milo, goes through this tollbooth, and he finds a world that is totally whacked out, right? People, they don't grow up. They start at their, their permanent height, and so they're walking on air until they grow into their height, which is really weird. Um, but the thing that, that this brought to my mind was in the Phantom Tollbooth, Milo is, it comes to a mathematician, and this man gives him subtraction stew. And what subtraction stew was is it had this wonderful smell, this wonderful aroma, and as he would eat, the more he would eat, the more he got hungry. It was removing stuff from his... It was just like, I need more, and the more he ate, the, you know, the more he wanted, but the more he had, the less he... Less hung, the more hungry he felt. It was working in reverse of how food should be. And it seems like that's what's going on here for the people of, of Israel and Judah. And I think for us, God is, teaching, God is not teaching them mathematic principles, but the uselessness of a life outside of God's good plan. That satisfaction should come from a good meal, but it will not be there because we're living outside of what God intends for us. Secondly, he says that they will save but not keep. We've seen this. Those of you guys who are in retirement or close to retirement, my father-in-law um, retired right before the COVID pandemic. Of course, you know what happened in those months right after that. The stock market lost, what, 30, 40, 50% and then came back up immediately. Imagine thinking, this is, I've worked my whole life to save up for this and now it's gone. And yet it came back. But imagine what it would be like to think that you're saving and putting stuff aside and only to find that it's never building up. 
emergency after emergency dips into that emergency fund, and so you never have enough for the next emergency. Micah tells them their savings will not keep. In fact, he's going to allow these foreign raiders to take it off by sword. He says they're going to hunt, but they'll have no strength, excuse me, no strength to prepare it. Those of you who hunt may know a bit of what this might be like. Imagine going out and you're tracking a deer and you find that perfect, big, beautiful buck with more points than you've ever seen on a deer before and you get it, only to find that you got it just off from the heart. And so he has enough energy to run away from you. And so you track it only to find that it's gone down to the bottom of a ravine and this buck was so big, you don't have the strength. And there's not a road that'll get you back there. So all you have is a story. You can't carry it back. And even if you could carry it back, by the time you get it back, in what Micah is talking about here, it would be so corroded that you couldn't eat it. All we're left with is what if. And he continues, all these acts of futility, planting but not harvesting, having oil, taking olives and crushing them into oil, but not being blessed or refreshed. My wife keeps telling me to put on lotion and I keep forgetting, but it's as though you put on lotion all the time and never, your skin is never moist enough to keep from cracking. You're not ever blessed enough with this oil. He says there's grapes, but no enjoyment. You know, throughout the Bible, the images of vineyards and wine really represent prosperity. And here they're going to have all that, but they're not going to be able to enjoy it. And maybe the writer of Ecclesiastes was being a little prophetic when he penned these words in Ecclesiastes 1. These are the words of the teacher, the King, King David's son who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do we get? What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The, the, north, the wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. The rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and it flows out to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Some people say, here is something new, but actually it is old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past, and in future generations, no one will remember what we're doing now. I think the point is that when godly people allow godlessness in their lives, the result is futility and destruction. And while we do have the assurance of eternal life through Jesus Christ, we may still have to reap the consequences of our compromise. Which kind of begs another question, and that is, how does this happen? How do God's people get so far away from God's ways? I tell you, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not, ha not like we walk up, oh, I'm, I'm going to totally rebel against God today. Instead, it happens little by little by little by little. Right at the end of this passage, Micah concludes this section 
with comments regarding two kings of the northern kingdom. See, if you remember, the kingdom was united, and after Solomon um, stopped being king, his, his son, when he died, his son took over, and the northern kingdom, northern part of that, about 10 tribes rebelled, and they separated themselves. And they, over the course of time, set up different kings. Two kings were especially bad, Omri and his son Ahab. They were two of the most wicked kings. And rather, they, they introduced idolatrous practices in the kingdom. And rather than walking away from the ways that these kings were leading, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, they just kind of followed along. Okay, if this is what my leader says I should do, I'm going to follow in this. If this is what my culture says I should do, I'm going to do this. And it happens little compromise by little compromise by little compromise until we get to the point where we wouldn't even recognize who we are. But I do hope this can be an encouragement for us. You see, our nation may continually move away from godly values, but we don't have to follow. We've already seen there is wisdom in living God's ways, living lovingly, living justly, and living humbly. So may this be an encouragement to us. Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And so let me close just by, by having us process through a couple of things. You see, God called his people into his divine court, reminding them about the, the observers that are out there in the watching world. He reminded them of his expectations about justice, about loving kindness, about humble communion with them. And then he laid out his indictment, his just sentence. And then in all of this, I think God, through Micah, is encouraging us to take our sin seriously. If you're a follower of Christ, your salvation and my salvation should make a difference in how we live and how we speak and how we do business with other people. The attributes that mark the watching world should not mark the people of God. And where our conduct and our convictions are out of alignment, we need to repent come back before the Lord. We might have eternal hope, but as I said, sin's cancerous effects can reap devastating results in our lives this side of eternity. But there is hope. As you know, Jesus took our just judgment. He received the destruction that we deserved and took the futility of of our purposeless toil and brought meaning. In fact, in John 10, 10, it says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So let me encourage you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, recognize that Jesus takes your sin seriously, so much so that he willingly died on a cross, bigger than this, with a crown of thorns, probably close to that size, pierced into his head. And he did that as an innocent man, taking the deadly consequences of your sin and mine on his body. So the question I have for you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, is will you repent? Will you trust in him for your eternity? Will you say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm, I, my ways are daily falling short of your glory, but I know that you 
have overcome that. Help me to follow you. And maybe you've already trusted in him, but you've not gone public with your faith. Maybe now is the time time to declare that you are his through baptism. Maybe now's the time to say, yep, I'm ready for everybody to know I'm, I'm with Jesus, that he has redeemed me. And if that's you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ and you're ready to take the next step, talk to me afterwards. You can write it in your bulletin. You'll notice there's that little thing. You can say, hey, I want some information. Put it in the box or talk to me afterwards. If you want to get baptized, if you're ready to do that, let me know. And we'll have a conversation. I'll walk with you through some things that will help you understand what baptism truly is. But I think we need to recognize that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all take our sin seriously. And so should we. May our lives be marked by the flourishing that Jesus purchased for us.